This is Mark. And he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And these are the words that he pens. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they, his disciples, told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others say, one of the prophets. And he, Jesus, asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he, Jesus, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. Go ahead and take a seat this morning. What Jesus is doing in our text this morning is he's giving his disciples a test. He's giving his disciples a test. Everything from Jesus' initial calling of his disciples there along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, when he called his disciples and said, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Everything from that moment to where we are right here in Mark chapter 8 has been the classroom. And the classroom is not going to pass away. The classroom is going to continue throughout the duration of Mark's gospel. But Jesus is now going to give his disciples a test. He's going to test his disciples. Guys, fellas, what have you learned? What have you seen? What have you heard from me? What do you know to be true about me? Jesus gives his disciples a test. We'll look at that test here in just a minute, but let's first talk about the location of the test. If you have your Bible there in front of you, look at verse 27a. That's everything before the first period in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. That's the location of the test. I think we have a little graphic here just to give you kind of a a geographic sense of where Caesarea Philippi is. Just north of the Sea of Galilee, it's about a 25-mile walk uh, up the uh, northern side of the Sea of Galilee, and it would have taken about a whole day to walk it. Uh, The average stride uh, puts us somewhere in the ballpark uh, of three, uh, three miles an hour. And so if you multiply that by the time the sun's up, that's a full day's walk. 25 miles just north of the Sea of Galilee. As far as Jewish territory was concerned, Caesarea Philippi was considered the northernmost extremity. There you go. There's, there's the picture. I know it's small. Jesus and his disciples have just been right here in Bethsaida. And what they're doing is they're walking 25 miles up to Caesarea Philippi right here. That's the farthest that Jesus will go north before his crucifixion. Everything in Mark's gospel from this point on, Jesus is heading south on down to Jerusalem. All ministry takes place on the way, on the road to Jerusalem. Caesarea Philippi, it was the northernmost extremity of the Jewish territory. It was a city built on an outcrop of rock that was right at the base of of the looming Mount Hermon. It was an old city that had been rebuilt by Herod the Great. Remember, Herod the Great hated Jesus, had absolute disdain for Jesus. It was Herod the Great who who rebuilt the city. But later, Herod the Great's brother, Herod Philip, 
beautified the city. As a matter of fact, Herod Philip named the city Caesarea Philippi, which actually means Caesar's town. This is after Caesar Augustus. And so Herod Philip uh, and Caesar Augustus, Caesarea Philippi. That's where the name comes from. Matter of fact, Caesarea Philippi was home to a gleaming marble temple that was built by Herod Philip to honor Caesar, who was actually in this region and territory considered to be a god. Caesar Augustus was considered to be a god. As a matter of fact, the citizens of this city here, Caesarea Philippi, were required to enter this gleaming marble city once a year and pull with them a pinch of incense and put it on the burning altar and proclaim, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And so it's so interesting to me that this is the particular geographic area in which Jesus chose to reveal his identity to his disciples. This is the location that Jesus chose to stage the test. It was an area of mingled religious influences. Hebrew and pagan worship as well as emperor worship ran rampant in this area. Caesarea Philippi represented all the forces that were vehemently opposed to who Jesus was in his person and his work. Matter of fact, some scholars think that that Jesus asked his disciples the question, who do people say that I am, as he and his disciples are, are walking through the corridors or are entering into the city of Caesarea Philippi, and his disciples may have been looking at the various statues of the gods, the various statues of Caesar, all the pagan idolatry, and here are the disciples trying to figure out, well, I wonder who that is, and I wonder who that is, and who might that one be? Jesus pauses his men and he says, That's great. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? The location of Jesus' test to his disciples took place in an area where idolatry, the worship of false gods, ran rampant. And so Jesus wanted to know from his men, "Who, who do you say that I am? Amongst all the others, who do you say that I am. Write this down if you're taking notes, would encourage you to do so. Number one on your outline is this. Test question number one. Jesus poses, who do people say that I am? It's question number one. Jesus poses to his disciples, who do people say that I am? Look at the second half of verse 27. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? This is an interesting question here because it was very customary in Jesus' day for students to ask questions of their rabbi. But here Jesus turns the table and Jesus does the question asking to his disciples. The rabbi asks the students the question. You know, Jesus' disciples have, uh, have been thinking, considering, marveling, not really knowing where to file Jesus to this point. As a matter of fact, they're still wrestling with the question that was posed back in Mark chapter 4, verse 41, where Jesus calmed the storm and his disciples turned to each other and said, Who is this? Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? They're grappling with Jesus' identity. 
Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Jesus didn't ask this question here in verse 27, who do people say that I am? Because he didn't know the answer to it. Jesus wasn't out in the left field. He wasn't in the dark. He wasn't without a clue. He did not ask the question because he didn't know the answer to it. Jesus knew exactly who people said that he was. I think Jesus asks this question because the follow-up question is even more important. What Jesus is doing here is he's priming the pump. Everybody that's ever mowed a yard knows what it's like to prime a pump, right? You go to the lawnmower, at least if you have one like me, and you push that little plastic button a few times, and it gets everything primed up so that when you pull the cable, everything fires. Well, Jesus' first question is a prime of the pump to set the stage for the more important follow-up question that he will ask his disciples here shortly. I mean, Jesus had become a well-known figure, right? We've seen that all throughout Mark's gospel. Everywhere Jesus went, he attracted crowds. But we've said numerous times to this point that the crowds, at least in Jesus' understanding and perception, were not a sign of success. I mean, Jesus was not head over heels excited about the fact that there were always crowds clamoring after him everywhere he went. Jesus, as a matter of fact, saw the crowds oftentimes as a distraction to the proclamation of the gospel. You see, the crowds weren't interested in who Jesus was. The crowds were interested in what Jesus could do for them. They viewed Jesus nothing more than a circus act and just hoped that this circus act could do something that other traveling sideshow circus acts could not do previously. I mean, Jesus seems to be able to heal the lame. Jesus has told the paralytic to stand and walk. Jesus has, give, has given hearing to the deaf and sight to the blind. He's raised the young girl. He has stilled and calmed and quieted the storm only with the power of his voice. People, people have seen what Jesus has done. They're not interested necessarily in who he is. They're interested in what he can do for them. This is all before the days of Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, iCal, Everywhere Jesus went, I mean, word spread quickly. It spread by word of mouth. Everywhere Jesus went, he was met with the crowds. The crowds would find out where he was going, and they'd show up there to hear him and to see him heal the sick. But who was Jesus? Who was it that the crowds thought they were following? Who was it that they were coming to hear? Well, Jesus asks his disciples that question. Let's look at some of the answers that Jesus' that Jesus's disciples give him here in verse 28. Write this down on your outline there. Voices from the past. What have voices from the past said about the identity of Jesus? Look at verse 28. This is the disciples' response to Jesus' question, who do people say that I am? Verse 28, they tell him, they told him, John the Baptist. Some people say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still yet others, one of the prophets. One of the prophets. Three, three distinct, very different people here that Jesus has been confused with. The disciples tell Jesus that some people think that he, Jesus, is actually John the Baptist. You'll remember, this is what Herod thought. 
Herod, who had beheaded John the Baptist, thought that John the Baptist was reincarnated, that he had come back to life, and he had come back to life in the person of Jesus. Herod was very afraid, remember? Herod was terrified at that thought. It's interesting that people would think that Jesus and John the Baptist were the same person here uh, because Jesus and John the Baptist had been seen together publicly previously. Okay? Not only that, but, but Jesus and John the Baptist were, were very, very different individuals. Quite different in personality, quite different in ministry. John didn't perform any miracles, but yet Jesus often performed miracles. How, how people could confuse Jesus with John the Baptist, I'm uncertain, but that certainly was a particular thought pattern of the day. Some of the voices in the past thought that Jesus was just John the Baptist who's come back. Just a resurrected John the Baptist. But Jesus' disciples say that, that, that still yet some others think that you are Elijah. That you are Elijah. Remember Elijah was taken up to heaven in a, in a fiery whirlwind? To, to the Jews, I can see how maybe this was uh, a, a thought process here. The Jews saw Elijah as being the forerunner and the herald of the Messiah. They just mixed that up because that was John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist was the forerunner and the herald of the Messiah. John the Baptist was the one that said, make way for the coming Messiah, for the one who comes after me. I'm unworthy to even stoop down and untie his sandals. Make way for him. He's coming. But in Jewish thinking, it was Elijah that was going to come before the Messiah and be a herald for him. It was, it was Elijah that was going to heal the breaches and, and bring order into the, the, the chaos of the world at that point, preparing the way for the Messiah. And so they thought that when Elijah came, the Messiah must not be far behind. And so some voices from the past thought that Jesus was John the Baptist. Others thought that he was Elijah. Yet others just lumped him in a long line of other prophets. Some people, Jesus' disciples told him, think that you are one of the prophets, just another spokesman of God. Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses actually foretold that God would raise up for the people a prophet from among them, just like Moses, in whom they shall listen. To whom the people shall listen. There'll be another prophet, Moses said, that God will raise up and be like me, and he will declare to the people, and the people shall listen to him. You know, to, to liken Jesus to John the Baptist or Elijah or a prophet was to, was to rank Jesus certainly among very great figures in Israel's history. This is an indication of Jesus' uh, prominent standing in the popular mind, but yet even these comparisons are woefully, woefully inadequate. Jesus is not John the Baptist. Jesus is not Elijah. And Jesus is not just one of the prophets. Well, these weren't the only voices that were prominent in Jesus' day. There were many other voices, some of these we've heard already, that had something to say about who Jesus was. Many, many people had something to say about who Jesus was. Remember the Pharisees. They've said it in Mark, they say it in John, they say it elsewhere. They told Jesus that he was demon-possessed and insane. 
and even ask the question, why do we listen to this man? Well, we know what they think. We know who they think Jesus is. He's demon-possessed. He's insane. Why do we even listen to him, the Pharisees said. How about the scribes? Remember, it's the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus is, is taking to task so often that he's to- going toe-to-toe with. We've already heard the scribes speak in Mark's gospel earlier in chapter 3. Again, the scribes say Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, and he casts out demons by the power of demons. In other words, Jesus, you're just a demon, and the only way that you can cast demons out of individuals is by the power of Satan himself. You're you're in cahoots with Satan. That's what the scribes thought. How about the, the Jewish governing body? The Jewish Sanhedrin. What did they think about Jesus? Well, Matthew tells us in his gospel, in Matthew chapter 26, the Jewish Sanhedrin say of Jesus, he's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And then they answer, the people cry out, he deserves death. And then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. We're making fun of them. What about Jesus' own family and friends? Remember just a few chapters back in in Mark, uh, Jesus and his disciples are running all over the place, preaching the coming kingdom, healing diseases and sickness. And when Jesus finally retires back with his family just for a very short while, Jesus' family tries to, the, the language is actually to seize him because they think he's lost his mind. They think he's deranged. They think he's utterly gone bonkers. He's out of his mind, his own family and friends said. But not everybody was mistaken about Jesus' identity. Though there are many, many examples, not, not everyone was mistaken. I mean, think about the angels at the Incarnation. At Jesus' birth, Luke chapter 2, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, Christ, Messiah, from the Hebrew word Messiah, the Anointed One. The angels got it right. John the Baptist even got it right. John uh, chapter 1, verse 29 The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a right answer. It's a good answer. How about the blind man in John chapter 9? Jesus heard that they had cast blindness out of him. Having found him, they said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he, the blind man, answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, You have seen him, and it is he that is speaking to you. And the blind man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. He worshipped him. Lord, I believe. I believe that you are the Lord. And even the demons got it right, did they not? We studied this already in Mark chapter 5. Crying out in a loud voice, he said, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And even the demons got it right, but yet so many got it wrong. What did Jesus think of himself? What did Jesus think of himself? 
That's an important question to ask. Jesus considered himself to be the Messiah. He saw himself to be the Messiah, God's son. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ not not only asked for, but demanded faith and obedience from his followers. He demands it, friends. Not a question when it's convenient. The Lord Jesus Christ demands our faith and our obedience. Not only that, but he accepted worship. He accepted the full commitment from his disciples and those who did get it and did believe. He viewed his death, Jesus viewed his death as a sacrifice and an atonement for sin. He he didn't just see his death as an example, okay? Be kind to people like I'm being kind to people. Look how I'm being kind to people. Now you go and do likewise. He didn't just see his death as a great example. Jesus saw his death as a ransom. As a ransom. Jesus said it himself. We'll study it here in just a handful of chapters. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as a payment for sin. Sin demands payment, friends. Sin causes radical problems, and it demands a radical solution. One only the Lord Jesus Christ could provide. Well, there's some voices from the past. There's looking back at what others thought of this man. Who do people say that I am? Let's speed up here now to our present day. Who who do people say that Jesus is today in the world that we live in? This is voices from the present. Voices from the present. Consider Muslims. The Quran mentions Jesus or Isa 25 times, but interestingly, differently each time. The Quran explains that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary and is honored highly in this and in the next world. The Quran also refers to Jesus as the, quote, spirit from God, as someone blessed by God, the word from God, a prophet or messenger from God. However, while Muslims accept that Jesus was a servant, while Muslims accept the fact that Jesus was a teacher, while Muslims accept the fact that Jesus was a lover of God's word, they do not believe that he was and is the divine son of God. The Messiah come to ransom guilty sinners. How about a Hindu? What does a Hindu think about Jesus Christ? Well, there are many varieties of Hinduism which embrace a very complex and divergent set of beliefs, and for that reason it is it's very difficult to isolate a unified set of beliefs related to Jesus. It's very difficult to really hone in on what what do they think across the board. It's very, very varied. Hindus believe that Jesus is just one of an estimated 333 million other gods. Did you catch that number? 333 million 
other gods, lowercase g. They see Jesus as virtuous. Some even would articulate that Jesus was a holy man. They see him as a wise teacher, but he just sits in a line of countless other gods that must be appeased. Hindus don't believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Instead, Hindus believe in the unceasing cycle of life, death, and reincarnation. It's your, it's your karma. It's the result of your good actions, be they, uh, or your actions, be they good or bad, that will determine how you'll be reincarnated, how you'll come back in the next life. What did the writer of Hebrews tell us? It is appointed once for man to die, and then there's judgment. How about the Mormons? How about the Mormons? I have a number of good friends in Evansville uh, who are Mormons. These are guys that I cycled with. These are uh, guys that I had opportunities to share the gospel with as we would spend time together. Great friendships, but they think vastly different about the Lord Jesus Christ. In more than half of the states in the United States, Mormonism is the fastest growing religion. Mormons believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three separate gods. Kiddos, let me get your attention. Do we have three separate gods? Give me an answer. I heard it back there. No, how many gods do we have? One. We have one true God. Praise the Lord for that answer. Praise the Lord for that answer. We have one true God. Furthermore, the, the Mormons, the Book of Mormon teaches that, that only a fool would say that the Bible is sufficient and that other scriptures are not needed. Larry Garrett stood here this morning and declared that God's word alone is sufficient and authoritative, and rightly so. 2 Peter 1.3, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness in his word that our Mormon friends would not believe that. They believe it's foolish to see the Bible as being sufficient and that it not be added to. Nephi, chapter 29, verse 6, Thou fool that shall say a Bible. We have got a Bible and we need no more than a Bible. It's foolish to say that. They think. In those other Mormon books, they teach that Jesus was the first baby born to Father God and Mary, his own daughter. Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Mormons don't believe that Jesus alone is the only way to heaven. They believe they'll get there on the basis of their own good works. After all that you can do, God will help you. But you must work. How about humanists, or the secularists, or the atheists? Will they... They simply deny that Jesus ever existed at all. That's what an atheist would claim. We know that God has not left himself without adequate witness, right? Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. The justice of God is being revealed against mankind, from heaven against mankind against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. 
For God has made himself plainly known in all that has been made so that all men without exception are without excuse. You know the word plainly there in Romans chapter 1? God has made himself plainly known. In the original language has the idea of sparkling, gleaming, glittering. It's kind of like the fire of a diamond when it catches the light. There's no missing it. God has made himself clearly known, clearly perceived by what is being made or by what has been made so that no man is that excuse. Now we know that creation alone is not sufficient witness. The gospel must be preached. The gospel must be believed in order to be born again. But God has left himself a witness in what has been made so that all men are without excuse. And so even those who, the, who deny, who reject that Jesus ever existed at all, are living a lie. It's interesting. I uh, came across recently a quote from uh, the TV magician Penn Gillette of the magician duo Penn and Teller. You may have seen him on TV. And uh, Penn uh, is a uh, is a outspoken atheist. Would would deny the existence of God. But listen to what Penn says. These are his own words. Quote. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. So I've always said I don't respect people who, who say they believe in Jesus if they don't tell other people that Jesus exists. I don't respect that. I don't respect that at all. And if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and that people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you don't think that it's really worth telling them because it would just make it socially awkward and that atheists like me would think you've lost your mind? I don't have much respect for you then. This is an atheist saying this. And he goes on to say, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not to tell them? Wow. How about this sentimentalized view of Jesus? Just Jesus holding the lamb, the picture of Jesus just knocking on the door, waiting for us to open it for him. How about pop culture's idea of Jesus? Pop culture, just the, the, the culture at large that we live in, just believes that Jesus was a great teacher. You, you heard it on the video this morning, just random interviews. He's a great teacher. He's, he's someone who has good ideas about loving your fellow man and about being good to others. But they don't believe he's the Savior. They don't believe that he's God in flesh. Many people would, would acknowledge the existence of Christ, but they refuse to bow to his authority or to give him the worship that he deserves. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, has a wonderful line. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying a really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus and that really foolish thing is this, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man, Jesus, was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. 
Lewis goes on and says, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, and you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come up with this patronizing nonsense about his only being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that option open to us. He never intended to. Well, there's some voices from the past and some voices from the present. Jesus asked his disciples, question number one, who do people say that I am? To set the stage for this more important question, write it down. Test question number two, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Look at verse 29. He, Jesus, asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. You are are the Christ. The emphasis in verse 29 is on the little word you. Jesus stresses you. It's emphatic in the Koine Greek. Jesus stresses you when he asks this question. He wanted to know whom the disciples, in contrast to all the multitudes, believed that he was. God has already answered the question, right? God the Father has answered the question at Jesus' baptism when the heavens opened and the Spirit descended like a dove on the Lord Jesus. God spoke audibly and said, This is my Son, in Him I love, and in Him I'm well pleased. God has already spoken. God has answered. And now Jesus asks His disciples, What's your answer? Who do you say that I am? And Peter here speaks up on behalf of the disciples. And the other disciples evidently agree with this statement because they made no objection. And Peter, as a matter of fact, from this point forward, is really the spokesman of the disciples. Uh, when, when, when Peter speaks, he's speaking on behalf of the disciples, speaking for the disciples. And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Again, the word Christ there is the Greek rendering of the, the Hebrew word for Messiah. You are the Messiah, it means the anointed one, the one come from God, the Savior of the world. In Luke's gospel, Peter is said to say, you are the Christ of God. Matthew, in his gospel, combines uh, what Peter said in Mark and in Luke. And he writes this, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It's interesting to note that while Jesus emphasized the word you when he asked the question, Who do you say that I am? Peter now emphasizes the exact same word when he answers, You. You are the Christ. You are the Christ. What Peter is saying here is you and you alone, you and no other are the Christ of all the gods represented here in Caesarea Philippi. Even that guy and that guy and that guy and that marble statue and that one over there, you and you alone are Christ. You and you alone are the Lord. You and you alone are the Messiah, the anointed one. Caesar's not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Friends, in the few minutes that we have left here this morning, 
I just want to make it as personal as I can and let you know that this question right here these eight words are the fork in the road that every man woman young boy and young girl will come to every single one of us without exception comes to this very fork in the road who do you say that I am and your answer to this question divides eternity friends every single person in here has an answer to this question every single person in here has an answer to this question who do you say that I am and to claim a non-answer is to have an answer your confession concerning Christ is a matter of life and death for Jesus in his own words, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone who hears these words of mine and believes in him who sent me, he will not come into condemnation. But he's crossed over from death to life. This is the watershed question that all eternity hangs on. Who do you say that I am? Your answer to this question determines life eternal or death eternal. Who do you say that he is. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, a familiar passage to probably most of us this morning, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee without exception, every tongue without exception will bow and will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Have you? Have you? Or do you have one of these views of Jesus that we get from the old voices in the past or just the voices of the present? Is Jesus nothing more than a sentimentalized figure in history to you? Is, is Jesus very, very little to you other than just what pop culture says? Good man, moral teacher, good example, teaches us to love, should try to be like him. I should probably stop cussing. Those are, the, those are the types of applications that we make when our view of Jesus is like that. Not understanding that Jesus demands my life, my all. My life, my all. Have you come to the point in your own life where you have confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord? Jesus Christ is Lord. Friends, Jesus is still asking this question today. This same question is being asked today to every single one of us without exception. Who do you say that he is? I hope every one of you has come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by repentance, means turning from your sin, and faith in Jesus Christ alone. Repentance and humble faith. God says the moment we do that, he removes from us our heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh, makes us a new creation. We become John 3, born again, new spiritual life, transformed from the inside out, we begin to grow 
to become more like Jesus, to be conformed more and more into his image, but you must be born again lest you be dead in your sins and trespasses. Jesus is asking the question today, who do you say that I am? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for each person here. Thank you for the little ones that are here, Lord. I pray that even in a message like this, they are able to distill something of the truth of the gospel. Lord, I thank you that our young people can sit in here and to see the older generation worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And Lord, I pray that they will wrestle with, that they will grapple with, along with the rest of us, this very question that Jesus posed to his disciples, who do you say that I am? God, I pray that you would be even drawing some to yourself today by your marvelous grace and mercy, that some would become a new creation, some would become born again today as a result of hearing the simplicity of the gospel which can be understood and, and accepted even by a child. God, I pray that you would grant repentance and faith that only you can grant. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.